All right, let's open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And um, this is one of them chapters uh, that seems to be just purely self-explanatory, so it means you might get out of here in 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, don't be giving people false hope, Doug. It's a good chapter. Paul starts off this chapter. He says, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time of accepted, and in the day of salvation I have secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. Paul says, we then, as workers together with him, that is, of course, obviously Jesus. And this is the best way to see it. There's an interesting passage in the Bible in Philippians chapter 2. You don't have to turn. I'm going to read it for you. It's in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And here's what, here's what it's, Paul wrote to the Philippians. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, most people, when they use that verse, that's where they stop. But he goes on in verse 13. He says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's God that works in you. You see, it's important, my friends, that when you think of being workers together with Christ, that you don't misunderstand what Paul is saying and that you combine the works of your hands with what God is doing. That's not what Paul is saying. And so often, that's what you see today. It's, it's that mixture of grace plus works, and it just doesn't work. That's putting new wine into old wineskins, and you know what happens. It doesn't work. If you remember, in our last chapter, you know, Paul said there in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he said, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. The thought that Paul was trying to get across is that we who have been born again, are the representatives, thus we're ambassadors for Christ on this earth. We are the mouthpiece, if you will. But we're also his hands, and we're also his feet. And to put it more plainly, he says to you know, keep it in perfect perspective, we're the tools, if you will, in the hands of God. That's what Paul is trying to say. But so often, when we hear we're workers together, it reminds me of the old Tom T. Hall song, you know, me and Jesus got our own thing going. I got news for you, Tom. No, you don't. You know, we come to Christ in his terms and God according to his terms. You don't come to God on your terms. Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? But it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It is, that's the combination. It's, you know, those of us who like to work with wood, just picture yourself as the hammer, if you will, in, in the hand of God to build or to do whatever it is that God is choosing to do. 
So he uses these earthen vessels. And Paul tells them, he says, not to receive the grace of God in vain. You know, he beseeched the Corinthians that they would not just set it aside. He pleaded with them. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. I've seen so many people, and it's heartbreaking when you see that, when you preach to them and you offer them this free gift of salvation, and they take it in vain. They set it aside. Paul was begging him not to do that. It's not something that you can put off. And there's a lot of people out there right now who have been putting it off for years and years. You know, I would challenge those of you who are listening to me right now, whether you're in a car, whether you're at home, I don't care what part of the world you're in. I want to challenge you in something. If you've never made a commitment to Christ, think about this for a moment. How often have you tuned in to a gospel message? How many friends have you been around who you've seen come to Christ, who have talked to you about your relationship with the Lord? How many times has the Holy Spirit wooed you and knocked on your door and you have set the grace of God aside? You have counted it a vain thing. I want to challenge you that the fact is is that God has elected you. He has chosen you. And that's why you have heard the gospel so many times. That's why. So today, Paul says, is the accepted time. Now is the appointed time. Quit putting it off. Don't treat it as something vain. Accept the free gift of salvation which is in Jesus Christ and become part of the elect. Prove your salvation, he says. Prove your election. Make it sure by simply saying yes to the things that God has in planned and in store for you. Today is the appointed time. Now, there are those who have this mindset in the, in the body of Christ. That somehow, in order to preach the gospel, I have to have some sort of an intimate relationship with you. Now, no doubt, it's fine if you do. Andrew and Peter were brothers. One preached to the other. That's great. But what we see in the New Testament, the illustration that Paul gave us, is he would simply preach to whoever would listen. And he gave them the ultimatum at that moment. Today's the day. Now you need to make a choice. Even Billy Graham used to call it, this is the hour of decision. You need to make a decision. And it needs to be now. I think that this is a mindset that the devil has given to the church. That somehow if I don't have an intimate relationship with you, I cannot preach the gospel. It's baloney. It's It's not true. I remember the story of D.L. Moody. I've probably told it to you before, but it begs to be told tonight. D.L. Moody, of course, as you know, at the turn of the century, was one of the greatest evangelists of his time. He was also a pastor there in Chicago. And in 1871, on a Sunday morning, he was preaching and and, and doing his normal thing, and, and he was a great evangelist, but... He got it in his head that somehow he wanted to give his listeners time to really ponder what it was that he was saying about Christ. He wanted them to really understand, you see, what their commitment to Christ really was. So he gave the invitation. He says, now, I don't want you to make a decision tonight. I want you to think about this over that week. As as D.L. was preaching, though, there was a kindling of a fire in Chicago 
that was happening at that very moment while he was preaching. Of course, they didn't have the news and everything else, and most people didn't even know about it. So he sent them home in, in, in anticipation of them returning the following Sunday to give a, you know, their acceptance to Christ. The problem was, was by the time that fire burned, which burned till October the 10th, which was my birthday, many of those people were no longer in the congregation. They had died that night or in the coming days in the Chicago fire. D.L. was so moved and he was so disgusted that he had given place to such craziness that he swore there and before God that he would never allow anybody a moment more than that present time to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Now is the accepted time, Paul said. Now is the day of salvation. Never think that you have to. I don't care if you just met him in, in Kmart. I remember one time me and my little brother were just standing in line at a Kmart. We were just young pups in the Lord, but we loved Jesus. We were on fire for Christ. And we turned around, and there was a couple young men behind us. And we started up a conversation because, as you know, in Kmart, you can check in, but you cannot check out. And we were there for a long time. And the next thing you know, we gave an invitation. These young men accepted. And here we were in the middle of, of Kmart, standing in the line, waiting to get out. And we're in a circle around these two boys. You know, and they were probably 18, 19 years old, young men. And we're praying with them to pray. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, at that moment, I, I paid no attention. I didn't even realize I had forgotten where I was at, if that makes any sense to you. And when I opened my eyes after these boys had said the prayer, I noticed that there was a multitude of people who had gathered around us. And some of them were praying with us. You know, it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter how close you know somebody. Yeah, great. If you have a relationship with somebody and they don't know the Lord, absolutely share the gospel. But it's not necessary. But yet it's being preached today, you know. We need to have a relationship with somebody, which means I want to just get to be friends with you first. Well, you know what? You might not have that much time. You might not have that kind of time for me to have a relationship with you. But what I might have is that five minutes to share a brief gospel message with you and to give you an invitation. Listen, don't just preach the gospel. Give them the opportunity to respond. Give them the opportunity to respond. Paul says to give no offense to the ministry. Paul's intention was to do nothing that brought offense to the ministry that it, and he wanted to be blamed. Paul would have never purposefully used the ministry to enrich his own life financially or to take advantage of those to whom the minister, uh, to, that he ministered to in order to ease his own suffering. He, he just didn't want to do that. The problem today, of course, gang, is that people are so easily offended by everything. It's almost it's become a joke because people are so politically correct or incorrect, whatever the case may be, that they're just offended by anything. <clears throat> when Paul talks about not being, you know, an offense in anything that the ministry be not, but he's not talking about his speech. He's not talking about words. 
I mean, you know, we're told even in the book of James that we offend in many things, even in word. Paul often offended people with the things that he said. As you well know, as we've studied Paul's life, when Paul preached, some were always offended. There was always two things that either happened when Paul preached. It was either revival or revolt. It's just what happened. But many people were offended by his words and by his speech. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about not using the ministry as a means of anything other than preaching the gospel so that it wouldn't be blamed. How many times have we heard guys like Joel Osteen and so many other people who have milked and, and, and taken great amounts of money and privilege you know, I mean, Joel Osteen standing at the pulpit and telling people that, you know, Allah is God. You know, I mean, come on. You know, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that brings shame upon the, the ministry because you have pastors who are so ignorant of the word of God. That's the stuff that, that, that really brings, a, 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 you know, just shame to the ministry. And Paul said, no, we didn't want to do that. But it certainly wasn't talking about his words. Look at verse 4. He says, But in all things, approving ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. Paul says here that in all things, approving ourselves as ministers of God. How did he do that? Well, first he points to the physical things that he endured. You notice he, uh, he uses this prepositional word in, in dealing with the hardships and sufferings. Then he switched to the word by, in dealing with the mental things that he endured. Then he moves to the spiritual things here in verse 7. Look, he says, by the word. By the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Paul pointed out here what ministry is, the proof of ministry, and the characteristics of the minister is exactly what he was talking about. Verse 8, he says, By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Paul gives us these interesting contrasts that take place within the ministry. And when you look at them very closely, they're indicative of what ministry actually looks like. I've often said to many a young pastor and young men who have been looking at becoming pastors and teachers, and I've often told them, ministry can either be, and often sometimes is both, a blessing and a curse. And this is what Paul is basically pointing out. If you're going to, that's why, you know, when you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he says, if any man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Therefore, a bishop must be, and he gives the characteristics, as Paul just did, 
of what that minister should look like before he's ever put into that position. Why? Because he will need those attributes in order to be able to survive that calling. Now, I have a little problem when we say that pastors are called because the Bible doesn't say that. Paul says, if any man desires the office of a bishop. Pastoring is an office. It's not unlike the president, if you will, except his position is elected. You know, we talk about, you know, because if it's genuinely, if it's truly just a calling from God, then it wouldn't matter if you desired it or not. You know, how are you going to desire something God doesn't call you? No, no, no. God empowers you to do that, absolutely. You know, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. We understand that God equips. But pastoring, ministry, this is something that, that you know, especially pastor, it, it is an office. I read a Barna study. It hasn't been that many years ago. I was doing a study on the issue of pastors and those who have fallen. And it was an interesting read because what they said was basically 1,500 pastors every month in America alone, 1,500 a month, leave the ministry for one reason or the other. And that doesn't shock me in the least anymore. When I first read it, it was like, that can't be right. Oh, it's right. It's right. Why? Because so many desire the office of a bishop, yet they are not showing the traits of the Spirit, which Paul points out should be evident in their life. Thus, they get into the ministry, and the next thing you know, they can't handle the pains of the ministry, as Paul has rightly pointed out. Because living in the ministry is often a contrast. It's constantly a contrast. I know from personal experience. You know, Paul says here that, you know, as being unknown yet being known. I think it's funny, you know, that I have found myself in this town where nobody knows me. And yet I go one county over and it seems like everybody knows me. You know, everybody's heard my name. Everybody listens to my radio show. It's amazing. But once again, Jesus said pretty much the same thing, that a prophet, and I'm not calling myself a prophet, so don't send me no letters, but a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and around his own people. Why? Because they often take it as, you know, for granted. Well, that's just so-and-so, you see. But those who are outside of that, often a different story. But it's that contrast. It's a blessing. It can be a curse. You know, we can be poor. We can also possess all things because we possess Christ. You know, even though we don't have anything, we make others rich in Christ, in the Lord, you see. So ministry can be tough. Pray for pastors and those guys because the, look at the church today, gang. Dr. Jeremiah just did a study on, I'm not going to cite him tonight, but I thought it was an interesting uh, article that I read that he, he's recently published. And he's publishing a book. And it's not critical of the church. It's just a simple observation of how inept the church has become. Why? Because the world has influenced it so much. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. Paul says, O ye Corinthians, here in verse 11, our mouth is opened unto you. Our heart is enlarged. Paul's basically telling the Corinthians that, they, he, that he wanted them to hear his heart. You know, I want you to hear what I've got to say to you is what he's telling them. You are not straightened in us, but you are straightened in your own bowels. The word straightened here in the Greek is an interesting word, stenokarios which means 
to hem in closely. It means to, to press, if you will. And what I mean press is like uh, those of us who have actually used an iron. <laughs> if you've ever pressed a shirt to get the wrinkles out of it, you know, you press it and, and at the same time you're stretching the material. And so this stenocurio, it, it means to be pressed and to be stretched into a, a narrower place is kind of the feeling of the word. So they were being flattened out, but it also means to bring anguish. So you're being put under pressure, Paul said. You've been put into this narrow place, and it's causing you anguish. Paul went on to tell them, it's not because of us, he said. It's not us that are causing your anguish. It's not us because, you know, that you're being pressed. It's because of you. It's not because you've cut off your affection for you. We've not done that to you. But you've cut your affection off for us. That's basically what he's saying. This is what's causing your anguish. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children. Be ye also enlarged. If you take a note, you need to underline, I speak to you as children. Paul meant that. That was sincere to him. These were guys that he had went in and he had labored. He had laid the foundation of that fellowship. He probably appointed the pastor. He had probably helped them to decide who the deacons and who the elders were. Paul had labored in the Corinthian church. And he felt very close to them and, and like they were his children. And I'm sure that when we get a chance to meet Paul and we get to talk to him and get him to tell us the story, that it was a heartbreaking moment for him. As it often is, those of us who have had children who have went astray, and you've had to watch that, I know what that feels like. I've been there. You know, and you're praying, and it just rips your heart out because you know what the end result is going to be. You can't stop it, but you try. That's the way Paul was seeing this. He was trying. And so he wanted to speak to them as children. He was asking them to reciprocate the love that he had for them, that they would enlarge their heart towards them. But then he gets to these last few verses, and he says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. If you take a notes, underline that. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Almost every commentator breaks with the context of Paul's thought when they get to this verse. And they usually launch into a sermon on marriage or dating or something acquainted to that. And I will touch on that here in a little bit. But first, I want, you, I want to point out to you that Paul was not breaking his chain of thought here. What Paul means is, is that you cannot, well, what, yeah, you, you just can't treat this verse like a proverb. 
you know, just take it from its context and use it to st- as a standalone verse. You can't do that. Paul was not going on a different thought, but he was making a point within the context of his discussion. And what was that context? The context is that the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians had been put under stress. Not because of his lack of affection for them, but because of their lack of affection for him. Paul began to get the, to the source of that problem. You know, what had caused that really? Obviously, these, there were outside influences that were working behind the scenes, undermining Paul's ministry and his relationship with the Corinthian church. Now, turn with me, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 6. I want you to read this with me because it's important. I think it applies to what Paul's dealing with here, what he's pointing to. Proverbs chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 16. And it says here, he says, These six things doth the Lord hate. If anybody ever tells you God doesn't hate anything, take them right here to this. Six things the Lord doth hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that are swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. I think it's clear from the context of Paul's discourse that he was pointing to the source of discourse between he and the Corinthians. Thus, he he tells them not to be unevenly yoked together with non-believers. He drove his case home by asking these rhetorical questions. What concord has Christ with Belial? 